Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. We welcome you to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. And we're excited because we're in our fourth year. It has been a labor of love that now needs your support. We urge you, please join Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund, or make a donation so we may continue to inspire women to age with purpose, resilience, and self-care. Visit womenover70.com and join today. And today we're delighted to welcome Nora Natoff from Oak Park, Illinois. Nora, age 87, says that hers has been a life with many acts and many satisfactions. So here's a glimpse of Nora's earlier accomplishments. She was co-founder of a Montessori school in the mid-1960s. She's been a strong advocate for women's rights and civil rights. She led protests and lobbied against nuclear power plants, and she founded an environmental group. Nora raised her children on a self-sustaining farm, notably influenced by teenage summers spent Talisian, her grandfather's compound in Wisconsin. Her famous grandfather, by the way, was Frank Lloyd Wright. At age 51, Nora became a geriatric nurse practicing holistic health until she was 77. She's currently active with the Oak Park Action Team for the End of Life Options Coalition, which is part of Compassion and Choices, and as a longtime Quaker, as a member of Oak Park Friends. So welcome, Nora, to Women Over 70. We're really pleased to have you with us. It's good to be here. You know, Nora, you've, I've heard you say that it never, I quote, it never occurred to me in anything I did that it wouldn't happen. It just all worked out. And I'm, so I'm curious, who or what influenced you to approach life in this way? Well, I've given a lot of thought to that. Uh, I think partially it was my mother, who was pretty much a can-do can do person. And I think I was always surrounded with people that were accomplishing things, were very positive. And my mother did raise me. I was never permitted to use the words can't. I could use the word I didn't want to, but I never could use the word can't. Because she believed you can do anything, you set your mind to it. So I think those probably, you know, they weren't very subtle. But <laughs> I, I think they, uh, they influenced me, although I was pretty insecure as a student. And <clears throat> in my first job, which was with the Geological Survey as a aeromagnetic map editor. Oh I uh, I just sort of got reborn. And <laughs> you got reborn with with that well, job, or shortly after? Well, part of being independent, having my own money, mm. making my own decisions. Uh, I always felt I was in. I had a very combative relationship with my mother. And I thought she didn't understand me, and uh, and the things she wanted, I definitely didn't. I was terribly recalcitrant, really awful. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> but when there was no one to be recalcitrant against, then I could be myself more. Oh, that's interesting. You know, you're you're um, you've been involved in so many social uh, action movements and and issues 
And so tell us a bit about what inspired you to, to choose what you did get involved in. Well, I have a very strong belief that you have to give back to the society you live in. I, I saw it more as a an obligation. It was just unthought, unthinking to me that you would you would live and not be part of trying to make where you live better. I was a pacifist at heart, and then I became a Quaker. But I was very opposed to war from the very beginning of my young life. And I, I believe that I picked causes that both were affecting me directly, like the nuclear power plant, and causes that involved bettering the lives of my children, the Montessori school. and. Um, I wanted, as a young as a young woman, girl, I wanted to be a doctor, but I knew very early on that I didn't have the discipline to do the education and the time it would take. So when my children left home, or just before they left home, I decided to become a nurse. And uh, as a nurse, I felt that I was giving back to the people, because I was a geriatric nurse, people to a large degree that built the foundation that I was benefiting from. Nora, where did you grow up, if I might ask? I, I, my mother moved around a lot. Her, her job required that she did. I, I was born initially in New York City. And then I lived there for a short period of time. Then I moved to Peekskill, New York. And then my mother became involved with the School for American Craftsmen. And it was first located in Alfred, New York. So we moved there and she taught production and marketing. And then it moved to um, uh, Dartmouth College and we moved to Hanover, New Hampshire. And then um, when my mother well, in between there, we moved to Peekskill, New York, mm -hmm. uh, again, <clears throat> and uh, and then we then I from there I went to I'm trying to get things in order here. When I I went to college, junior college in Briarcliff, New York, mm -hmm. and then I went to um, Washington D.C. And then Washington, D.C., uh, went to Virginia. No, New Jersey. Then we went to Virginia. And then uh, then I moved to Texas and then back to Pennsylvania. Oh, my. So, and now I'm here in, in the Midwest. So it was mainly in the Northeast. I went to private school in Massachusetts. Uh -huh. that's, um, that's a lot to keep track of. Yes. <laughs> Nora, tell us a little bit about your summers with your under in your with your grandfather and his compound in Wisconsin. What was that like? Uh, my mother was estranged from her father for I don't know what the reason was. I never did hear. But I first met him at the Plaza Hotel uh, when I was about twelve years old. And Olga Vanna, his last wife, 
my step-grandmother, um, arranged a meeting between my, my mother and her father, and I came along. He had, a, he had a suite in the Plaza Hotel that he had designed and decorated, and I was very enamored with the whole thing. It was quite beautiful. A lot of the <clears throat> upholstery was in Cherokee red. And um, so that was my first meeting with him. And then it was arranged that I would go to Taliesin uh, when I was um, older. And so I started going there in approximately 51, 1951. And I went for several summers, and it was a it was a, a new world to me. It was very exciting. I um, initially I was very intimidated by my grandfather. He could be a rather stern individual. He wasn't your typical man that bounced you on your knee. Um, he he was either talking at you but frequently never with you. And um, he was saying lots of things that I didn't really put together till much later in my life. And my first encounter with him when I went to Taliesin was not very positive. And I got up from the table. I was eating dinner with the immediate family in the main house. And uh, I got very upset left the table, and I guess Olga Bonner had to talk with Frank, and he came downstairs and he apologized. And so I, my beginnings were a little on the rough side. But then one of the things about Taliesin was that everybody had a job, not necessarily in the drafting room, but in just keeping the operation going. Uh, when I went, it was at the end of its uh, being a sustaining community where they, you know, had their own cows and chickens and pigs and gardens and that kind of thing. They had a vegetable garden. And so my job was to paint the roof of this, uh, what, an area it's between the two main buildings at Taliesin, Hillside and the main house at Taliesin is called Midway. And it's a long, low barn. And of course, it was designed by my grandfather. And um, I was to paint the roof, this Cherokee red. And I promptly spilled half a gallon of paint <laughs> all over the roof. Oh, no. And uh, I was terrified because my grandfather, every time he drove between the two buildings, would be able to see it. Oh. I never heard a word about it, but I never had another job after that. <laughs> and so I spent most of my time there attending. Uh, the weekends were very special. They always had a concert or a play, and the fellowship got all dressed up. and. Um, and my grandfather on Sundays, he would give his talk and I would listen dutifully. And I think I took in a lot of 
Well, a lot of what he said subconsciously, but not necessarily consciously. But I enjoyed those occasions. And then I got to ride my grandfather's horse, Johnny Walker. And so I felt very privileged to do that. And then Wes Peters, who was also, he was also, he had been married to Ogavana's other daughter, Svetlana. And um, they had a son called Brando. And I used to, he had a horse also called Fleet. And we used to ride all over the countryside every day. And so I did a great deal of that. And I also got to see some of the Gurdjieff movements. I just was exposed to a lot of things that I never, never imagined existed in the world. And what was so strange is that many of those same ideas reappeared in my life, like the desire to live in community. I was part of a number of startup uh, eco-villages. Unfortunately, I moved before I had a chance to live in them. And so I, I was very, and still am, I would love to live in community. And I am in sort of a community, but one that really is involved in participating in the existence of the community. And the other thing was that I, um, what did I start my talk with? I was involved in, oh, community. <clears throat> and the other thing was my experience with religion and my, um, my early leadings towards Eastern uh, religions. Um, through the Gurdjieff um, philosophy and then on to um, yoga and Hindu and Chinese Buddhism. So, Laura, uh, would you explain the philosophy you just mentioned? You mean of Gurdjieff? Yes. Man, uh -huh. I am no, um, it's, it's a, this is it in a very, very shallow nutshell. It's a belief that we are really live in this world, not very conscious of what goes on mm. around us. Mm. And the movements are really meant to focus your mind on the present. Mm -hmm. And there's a great deal more to it than that. Um, it's similar to yoga in the sense that many of, you know, yoga in this country is a physical exercise. <clears throat> in India, it's really a way to quiet the mind mm -hmm. and center. Yes. And, uh, but there are groups of Gurdjieff people in this country, uh, you know, communities. And, uh, I got a chance to meet Uspensky, which who is one of the American leaders was. I don't think he's alive now. Mm -hmm. But uh, Ogavana, my grandfather's last wife, was very involved with Virginia. He used to visit Taliesin fairly regularly. Uh -huh. 
Thank you've been exposed to just so kind of wonders of the world in a way. Um, you, uh, so you became equate, you, you said you were anti-war, you were a pacifist from a young age. And then when did you, be, when did you join the, the Friends? I joined it in Pennsylvania in 1970, 71. And initially I joined it for political reasons. Uh, because um, <clears throat> they were opposing the nuclear power plant with us. They were supporting us. But since then, I've, I've worked a lot on my spiritual life and uh, gone from there. Um, I wanted to ask you also, Nora, about you said that you've had so many wonderful satisfactions in your life. And and yet you've also experienced some real hardship um, through death, the lo loss of your first husband, your grandmother, your grandfather, Frank Lloyd Wright. And then you uh, experienced divorce uh, with your second husband after 30 years of marriage. What, how, how, did you, how did you cope with, with and adapt to those kinds of losses? Well, my the death of my first husband, which was in 58, and then the death in 59 of my mother, my grandmother, and my grandfather, um, <clears throat> was, I don't think I really grieved during that period. I think I just moved forward. And um, I think that was how I, I, I dealt with anything that involved a strong emotional content. And um, my divorce after 30 years, I really spent my life being married since I was 21 till I was 50 some years old and um, was pretty devastating. And um, but I had a wonderful job that I loved. And so I, I dealt with it going to work. And I could just forget everything when I worked. but. My, my, I guess my nature is to keep moving forward, to keep, I'm not, I don't have a nature to give up. It's not my nature to complain. I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I just feel I can do it. I, I'm really blessed in that sense. You know, I'm really fortunate that I have this. You know, moving here, I thought, would be much harder than it's turned out to be because all of my friends are on the East Coast. And um, the only person I know here is my son and his girlfriend. And uh, that was a year and a half ago. It will be two years in October. And I haven't found I've had any problem with it. It's been fine. <laughs> What so, it, it was it because your son was here that you decided to move? Yes, yeah. I see. I had that. I had a choice between Oak Park and Canton, Ohio, and I felt Oak Park was probably more to my liking. <laughs> so, how have you how have you been been engaged with people? And I know you're engaged uh, engaged with other causes now too. How, well, you know, the pandemic really. When I first came here, 
it was a little hard to get to know people. People were very cautious and there were no activities going on. And so I, I spent a lot of my time just communicating with my friends uh, via Zoom or via telephone. I'm also a part of a group called the Guild for Spiritual Guidance, which is, I'm in the graduate program. I went to two, I had a two-year apprenticeship in that program. And they meet on a routine basis every Tuesday, Zoom-wise. So I, 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 I kept to pretty well, that kept me very active. But then since the end of the pandemic, we formed a resident council here in the building. And I've been participating in that. I'm on two committees. One is called conflict resolution. The other is welcoming. I'm getting to know more people. And then I got involved with Compassionate Choices, mm-hmm. which has been a long end of life issues have been a long interest of mine. And uh, I've really enjoyed their meetings and I enjoy their mission and their goals. And that keeps me pretty busy to tell you the truth. <laughs> so you know, yeah. Once you get you know, once you start having meetings and and committees and this type of thing, then then you know it eats up a surprising amount of time. Are you living in a senior community, Nora? Well, it's no, it's uh, subsidized housing. It's Mills Towers here in Oak Park. Hundred and ninety-eight residents. It's independent living, although a few people here are not that independent. Uh, but uh, you, you, you name it, it's here. There are some very interesting people here who've had extraordinary lives. So um, very diverse. It's probably one of the most diverse communities I've ever lived in. Oh, I didn't realize that about Mills Tower Towers. Um, so can you just go back a second? You, the graduate program that you were in, what was that called? The Guild for Spiritual Guidance. It's a two-year apprenticeship program, and it has four strands. Um, Taylor Dujardin is one. Uh, Carl Jung is another one. Community is another one. And uh, Christian mysticism. And it's a series, it's a small group. It usually runs anywhere between 18 and 22 people. It was established in 1970 by a group of people from the religious community. It was very diversified, who felt that the mainline churches were not really teaching spirituality. And um, so this is... It's a two-year program. We meet every month. Well, when I took the program, it was every month. It's changed. There's more virtual uh, meetings than face-to-face meetings now. And um, and it's a lot of personal introspection. And um, as I said, it's a small group. And uh, we have facilitators. We have various 
We had a Sufi come and present there various presenters. We had somebody on the, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's called the um, Enneagram. And, oh, yes. Uh, uh -huh. And that was very, uh, a very, yeah. uh, that was, that was very, um, um, insightful. I learned a lot about myself. Yeah. Is that mainly for your own spiritual growth or yes. are you a counselor to other people? Well, there are some people who intend to become uh, spiritual guidance counselors. Mm -hmm. It was mainly for myself. Okay. I never intended to do that. But it's given me a lot of insight and um, and I've, I've had some uh, spiritual experiences that were very difficult for me to explain. And uh, that, that group was very helpful in clarifying those issues for me. Uh -huh. Wonderful. Um, you know, you were a geriatric nurse for many years, and did that did that influence your uh, choice to become involved with the end of life options coalition? Uh, I was interested in beforehand because I didn't really become a geriatric nurse until I was in my early fifties, mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> it certainly reinforced the need for that process to occur with all of us. Unfortunately, it's not a time that we like to talk about until we get to the point where we are at the end of our lives. But it, um, I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at how many people have given such little thought to it. The, the geriat, I mean, the generic answer for how would you like the end of your life to be is drop dead. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what, don't wake up. And nobody really wants to realize there are some really good choices that you have. You, you, you know, I, I think, I think it's a way of seeing your life in a positive sense. And this new book that we're doing for the book, um, uh, book uh, club next month. It's called, you know, let's see, what's Being it Mortal. Yeah, be, mm -hmm. it's excellent because it shows you there's this great ability for people to start communicating in an intimate way, a way that they're not able to under any other circumstances. So this is that's how I met you, Nora. Was through the um, Illinois or to the Oak Park team, yeah. End of life options, and I'm so grateful for for having met you. Um, how do you think about your own aging? You're 87. You're very active and engaged. Um, do you think? Do you give much thought to your to your own aging process? Oh, I have it all laid out. Do you? <laughs> Well, I'm I'm willing to end my own life when certain things get unbearable. Part of it is I do not want to live at the dependence of another. Mm. I just don't want that. I've had such a good and full life. Uh, life is 
you know, I'd like to live as long as I can, but only if I'm able to function independently. And um, so I'm, I'm perfectly willing to, if I have a choice, uh, choose it. Mm-hmm. And I, I've talked to my children extensively with great threatening words. And if I'm not able to make their choice, hopefully my children will be able to mm-hmm. make a choice and say no to treatment. Say no just, to treatment. Just mm-hmm. comfort. Mm-hmm. No, just comfort. But, you know, until you're faced with the choice, you don't know exactly. I've seen a lot of people change their mind. But mm-hmm. I never thought I'd live this long. You know, now I'm thinking about I might make it to 90. And then what? So... <laughs> I think you will. I'll just, I will just have to see. But uh, it, it I, I think compassionate choice is that wonderful end of life um, uh, booklet that they make available to the public is just one of the best tools I've seen and very comprehensive. Yeah, I would agree. I agree. Uh, and just for our listeners, uh, it is available through Compassion and Choices website. Um, it's it's free. Uh, they'll mail it to you. So, uh, uh, Honora is a wonderful spokesperson for the oh, end of life. <laughs> and um, she's been speaking with different groups and it's wonderful. That's Anything else, saying. Nora, before we need to close or Gail? Well, as I'm listening to you, Nora, I'm thinking curious minds are reluctant to grow. And you have shown such curiosity throughout your entire life and have attacked, you know, with verb, so many activities and causes and uh, taken in all that was given to you, even if subconsciously. And uh, so I admire the way that you think about life and how you're conducting yourself at this age. Well, thank you. I find all of this praise embarrassing. I always have. <laughs> it's it's not that you don't like it. It just seems to be sometimes a little overwhelming to me at times. But, you know, I, I would like to say I think the great thing that Compassionate Choices has is their value sheet because it gives you the tools to determine what you do want. And and there I don't know of any other tool that does that. And um, if you're willing to look at that part of your life, that tool will lead you to what you want. And it may change. You know, it doesn't have to be locked in stone. It's an ongoing process. So I always like to plug that piece of it. Mm -hmm. That's a very important point. Well, Nora, thank you so much for being with us. We just got a bit of a glimpse into, a, as I say, a life living well, lived well. And we really appreciate your being with us. Well, I've had a tremendous amount of opportunities given to me. And fortunately, I've been awake enough 
to take advantage of them. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mara. <laughs> wonderful note. <laughs> and listeners, at the beginning of the podcast, we urged you to join Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund. Aging Reimagined Circle hosts our monthly interactive programs, and we invite you to engage in these probing discussions and lend your voice to these important conversations about women aging. Visit womenover70.com to join. 